Hi, Wayne. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ageless Science podcast for the first interview. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today about your amazing career path and your work on FIRST since you've just been involved in so many projects. Uh, We're going to be splitting our interview in two parts. The first will cover your career path up to joining FIRST Robotics, and then the second episode will cover your involvement in FIRST Robotics. Really quickly before we begin, I want to plug an upcoming event that we're all super excited for and that I encourage all girls passionate about STEAM and or FIRST Robotics to attend. Andover Robotics will be holding their upcoming Girls in Engineering and Robotics Symposium, otherwise known as GEARS, on September 30th. It's an incredible opportunity for girls to learn about four tracks, role models, personal development, technical workshops, and what's next. We discuss it in more detail in the second part of our discussion, so please feel free to check that out if you're interested in learning more. Let's jump into it. Absolutely. Ellie, thank you so much. I am so humbled and honored and flattered to be invited as your first guest. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity uh, to get to talk to you, to hear what you might be interested about and see what your li- listeners might be interested in talking to. So I wish you all the success with your podcast. Working with you over these past couple of years and getting to know you, you've got so much potential, much more than I will ever have and can fathom at this point. But to see you mature as a leader, to take on initiatives like this is just so inspiring for me. So again, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Wayne. Wayne and I go back many years through FIRST. Wayne has been such an inspiration to me um, as the BTI FIRST coordinator for Massachusetts. He's been at all the competitions cheering us on, and we've been cheering him on as a referee and all in all of his roles. So thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure. Um, yeah, and you guys are stepping up too. You're taking on the lead to bar, be our lead kickoff host partner at Weston High School on September 9th, right? We're so excited. It's going to be our so, first event hosted at our high school. I know, right? So if you guys are coming to Weston or tuning in uh, from our satellite broadcasts at over in Braintree or Western New England University in Braintree and Archbishop, please, you know, thank these guys for the show that they are putting on. They are working hard to put together a center stage performance that is going to be a kickoff like no other. And if you're interested in other first related events... We also want to briefly talk about the Andover upcoming GEARS event, Girls in Engineering and Robotics Symposium. It's an incredible event. Last year, I went with a couple of other girls on my team. It was incredible. They had tons of seminars and speakers, and I learned so much. It's upcoming, I believe. What's the date, Wayne? Do you know? September 30th. September 30th. So if you are a girl in robotics or first and you're looking for more engagement in the community, please sign up for that. It was such an incredible experience and I'm really looking forward to the upcoming event. Right. And we stress that it's Girls in Engineering and Robotics Symposium, but it's more than that, right? So it's about entrepreneurship. It is about how to market. And this is where I think girls, Ellie, if if I fault you for anything, and I don't mean this respectfully, is that you tend to be much more humble than most guys. And what that also means is you got to be loud and proud because if you don't celebrate yourself, girls, no one else will. Right? Own it, queens. Get this. So here we talk about having four tracks of panel discussions. One is role models. So we're going to try to bring in a lot of female role models, some male that are willing to encourage. Like I got to be one of the speakers in biomedical engineering. 
But all these things are intrinsically linked. And Gears is a celebration of female empowerment and female helping each other out and finding that community, right? Uh, personal development. We talked about not only how about how to brag about yourself, right? Ellie, we certainly talked about this at Houston. Like I pushed you guys to say, look, if you want to get drafted, you have to be able to go out there and market yourself. And you actually went around with me. Like, can you talk about that experience for a second? Yeah, we were in robotics at Worlds. We were in the tough situation of that. We had performed really well. We were very excited. And then we had a couple of matches that pushed us down in the rankings a bit. And so we were tasked with marketing ourselves to other teams because we weren't going to be in the top um number of teams that will be captains so we had to market ourselves to the teams that would be captains or we thought <coughs> we captains, so they would choose us so we could advance to the elimination rounds and so it was really a test of our ability to market ourselves we had to go to other teams and ask them to join us on the practice fields and demonstrate our abilities which was really something that push us out of our comfort zones because we had never attempted that until Worlds. I think I learned a lot from trying to explain how we're improving our robot and what we expect our robot to perform like on the field. And it was really amazing to get to talk to all of these other teams to see what they're looking for. So really we can bring those experiences to our, um, to our experiences at future competitions like regionals or states. Right. And let's frame... I'm gonna we're gonna finish talking about gears really quick and I want to go back and frame the achievement of GNCE for one second and put this in perspective for the listeners that may not know like what it means to get to worlds. How many people did you have to go through? What that exactly means. So finishing up real quick, um this is where you celebrate yourself as Ellie talked about. She had to go market not only her team, what their potential is, what the value proposition is. So think about this as you're applying for colleges, an internship, a job, right? This is a gears is in all the first events are an opportunity for you to learn these soft skills at an incredibly young age to then be able to get a leg up on those that may not only get that through like four years of college and then maybe you're their first years as an intern and in the professional world. So ladies, take advantage of these opportunities here and now they're there for you and we want to celebrate, promote and see how far you'll go right? To quote Dr. Seuss, which Ellie, that was an incredibly awesome thing that you did for your mentor, by the way. Last, we have technical workshops. So there will be hands-on workshops. So maybe you want to learn to solder. Maybe you want um, to learn about 3D printing. We haven't finalized the rotations and what all the those are going to be. But Ellie, if it's possible, maybe you could provide a link. I'm not sure how you would do that. Um, later yes. on so that they can register because we do need to know our attendees and can plan accordingly. And again, this is going to be at Andover High School in Andover, Massachusetts. So it's a really fun event. Thank you so much for letting us talk about that too. And of course, trying to get will, girls there. I will link that registration page in the description of the podcast on the Ageless Science website. So if you're listening to this, just go to the description and feel free to sign up. Okay. Now let's jump into your career. This first part, we're going to be talking about his career before or during, but not discussing first, and then tune into the second part to talk about his involvement first. Okay, so before we begin discussing your career, 
really. We should jump back and talk about your introduction to biomedical engineering. So your years at Columbia undergrad and BU grad school, what were the most important classes you took? What were the advantages of studying at these schools? How did you decide the concentrations that you did? Sure, absolutely. So if I were to go back, I'm from Michigan originally is what I call home. We've moved and lived all over. I've always been interested in the medical sciences in high school. I did a number of things, including first robotics. I was my first alum on FRC 217, the Thunder Chickens. But I also did things like volunteer at the local hospital emergency rooms, as well as in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care units, to try to get an idea of what I might want to do. So those are some of my interests. I also wanted to be a Navy fighter pilot. But my mom said she would kill me before I ever made it to boot camp or on the carrier. So we got to listen to your moms, apparently. And as much as I would have loved that, I really enjoy what I do. Uh, I've had a very variety of careers. So fast forward, I still wasn't sure. But I went, then went to go to tour a lot of colleges and schools and try to do that. I think it's one where, why did I choose Columbia? Um, it's not just for the name. It's not for an Ivy. I did apply to some wonderful schools around the Boston area too. Michigan schools, California, etc. But what I recommend to all the students is don't go on a name or where you think you should, what you are expected to go to. Apply and reach for whatever truly makes you happy. Go visit and trust your gut feeling. I wanted a really well-rounded education. I went to Columbia University School of Engineering and uh, Foo Foundation School of Engineering and Applied Science, or Foo Cs. But it's a beautiful campus. And what was really cool is it's a liberal arts school. So I think focusing on the communication aspect for me and challenging myself to push myself out of my comfort zone for engineering and being more well-rounded was really important in my decision. You asked me about what were some of the most significant classes. Believe it or not, my most challenging classes where I learned the most were art humanities and literature humanities. Nothing to do with engineering because these are the challenge ones that forced me to, you know, really study hard in areas that I was not as well versed on where some of my classmates were way stronger going to a liberal arts college. Ultimately, I still wasn't 100% sure which way I wanted to go up until later. And this is what I also will tell you guys. It is okay to take your time to figure out what you want to do. Things will change. And for those of you that are polymaths, right, those that are interested in many, many different things, there's not something that's wrong with you. Be open to learning and exploring all those things and find whatever your passion is. Ultimately, what it came down to, what made the decision was I really liked the idea of combining engineering and medicine to better the human condition. So that's kind of what made me choose to say, like, okay, I could go do go to med school, but I really like the idea of getting to work with people, getting to work with engineers and directly create things that will benefit it, whether it's a technology, a therapy, or it's doing research on some of those things. 
That's an amazing answer. It covers so many of the questions I was planning on asking. I think you covered really important topics there, like the lessons that you would teach or you would go back and tell your high school self or other high schoolers if they were interested in pursuing um, a STEM career or any career really in humanities or STEM, and also how you chose to specialize in biomedical engineering as opposed to another field of um, another field of engineering or um, another field of STEM. And I think moving forward, if there's to a student who's looking to pursue a career similar to yours or a career in biomedical engineering, what would you mind explaining to them what the standard career education path is for engineers going into that field and what you can do with a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD, um, map that out for them and how difficult do you think it is to obtain a job after graduating with a biomedical engineering bachelor's or master's degree? Absolutely. So biomedical engineering is a booming field. We are always going to be trying to better the human condition, preserve life, increase quality of life. That basic sense of compassion is what drives us. So with that said, getting a job out of biomedical engineering, bachelor's, master's, absolutely, you're going to be in extremely high demand, well-paid fields. Um, you have multiple segments that you can go into and that field is ever expand. Those fields are ever expanding. I think that you also can go into research and academia. Now I will say if the, if you want to stay in industry, my recommendation is finish with a bachelor's or master's and go into industry for a while. Right. If you know you want to become a researcher and stay in academia, go for your PhD right away if that's what you know. But otherwise, go into industry, try it out, figure out what you want to, because it does two things. One, sometimes it's almost harder and you're all overqualified as a PhD because you don't have that real world experience, whereas those that came out of grad school or uh, undergrad and started to workforce have that real world working experience. Two, in a PhD, you have to specialize and decide what you really want to focus on. So um, I wanted to study the effect of bubbles in the bloodstream. Okay. That narrows you down for what your experience was and almost some can sometimes make you a little bit harder to market. However, that's not to knock those people that want to do that. But if you go into industry first and then later decide, I really like this field of doing needleless injections at very, very high pressure in a single stream of water. And I understand the fluid dynamics behind that. And I really want to go into this. And that's what I want to study for my PhD. Then you know what you want to study. You can maybe go back and get that PhD later on. But you also have the real world perspective going into grad school. Ellie, does that kind of answer your some of your questions there about what you were asking me about? I know I added some more in. No, that's a completely, that's an amazing answer. And I think it really propels us into the topic of your uh, involvement in the prosthetic arm business, such as the Luke Decca arm that you've sure. been in for a big part of your career. But I do want to, uh, the time is running out with the Zoom. So let's leave. Sure. So if I can add one last thing about uh, college, right? Of course. Um, and we can skip over BU where I did uh, grad school, where it was a wonderful experience. 
and I know we focus it, but I want to go through there. And I'm happy if anyone has any questions uh, to talk about BU at some other time. But one more plug along the uh, lines for Columbia is that we are one of the few Ivy League schools that has an all-girls sister school. So Barnard College, you are a bona fide Columbia University graduate. You graduate with a Columbia University degree, but we are sexist towards men and you get your own school, but you can take cross enroll at any of the schools, whether it's an engineering, Jewish theological seminary later on in life, um, the teacher's college, Columbia College and Barnard. I did have classes over at Barnard too. They were awesome. So if it is one where I would highly encourage um, the lady listeners to consider and apply, Go down there. If you would like to talk to me at any other point, feel free to reach out to Ellie and I will gladly talk to you about Columbia or my education at Boston U and any other schools that you may be interested about. Of course, and my contact info is on the website, so anyone can contact me and therefore contact Wayne. Uh, Thank you so much. Let's rejoin the Zoom and then we'll get back to it. Sure. Hey, Wayne, thanks for jumping back on the call. Where we left off, we were just talking about how the career path of an engineer and your advice for engineers regarding industry versus academia. And we were kind of using that as a jumping off point to talk about your work in prosthetics, which you've done for a really big portion of your career, which I find extremely fascinating as someone definitely interested in pursuing something such as prosthetics um, in my career. So for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the the arm system that you dedicated a lot of your career to could you explain the deca luke arm and what really makes it unique from all other prosthetics sure so the dark darpa deca luke arm system was part of the uh, darpa revolutionizing prosthetics 2007 initiative it was awarded to two teams one's at johns hopkins Inter- university um and at Johns Hopkins, their task was to develop a arm system that had a direct neural interface. So we're talking about brain plants for those that maybe um, are quadriplegics, right? Have a cerebral spinal cord, maybe have other some other compromising motor neural condition that necessitated a much more invasive, aggressive approach. For the DECA team, our task was to develop a external strap and go system that could later be adapted to have direct neural interface capability. So what we were focused on was to make a modular system that could be sectioned for transradial amputees. And for those of you who don't know, the amputations go through the largest bone. So you have your radial and ulnar in your forearm. If you're an amputee between the elbow and the shoulder, it's a transhumeral amputee for a trans... Uh, because you're amputated through the humerus. And you could be a four-quarter or shoulder disarticulation where you're missing your scapula or your entire shoulder itself or directly through it. Now, there's things like uh, that are through the wrist and through the elbow amputees as well, but they're kind of a subsect as well. So the DECA arm system was unique in the fact that in most arm systems at the time, what's you had powered open and closed, but they were in essence, maybe a uh, index and middle finger that were moving together and a thumb that closed against it, right? Or some semblance of it. So back then having all these multi-functioning digits with 
fingers that not only opened and closed, had an opposable thumb, was fairly new, a powered opposable thumb. In your wrist, you had you could sometimes have powered supination or pronation, which is that internal and external rotation. But flexion and extension, for the most part, was manual on these, or it was fixed straight out, right? So you had no flexion extension in some of these powered hand systems. Moving further up, there was maybe a powered elbow flexion extension, which is if you can think about doing a curl, right? with a dumbbell, that motion, you had that for lifting, but you're, you had what we call a passive humeral rotator, right? So, which is that moving your elbow internally, like towards your center and away from your body, right? That movement. And then there was no powered shoulder systems on the market at all. So your shoulder has the degrees of freedom of flexion, extension, right? Moving forward and back and abduction and adduction, right? Which is moving laterally out away from your body and then back tucking it towards your thigh. If you can think about that as anatomical directions in motion. And again, what was really cool about a lot of the technologies that I got to work on, that these were functionality and dignity restoring devices. And I stress the dignity because the quality of life and how someone feels about themselves is so important in the field of medicine and biomedical engineering and in the field of prosthetics. But it was incredibly cool to get to work on this. I oversaw three generations of arm system trials. I was the chief trainer. I handled a lot of our media prep for CNN, 60 Minutes. Um, we got to show the people and give people hope. And that is one of the big things that I love about biomedical engineering and Love being the clinical research manager on because I got to directly deal with people. I a lot of my job was translation. Now you're working with end users, clinicians that are prosthetists, uh, that sometimes might be orthotists. You had occupational therapists, you had physical therapists, you had government researchers. One of the cool developments was the realization that while we talked about all those degrees of freedom that we talked about um what we were missing like if you look at your wrist and you think about rotation pronation right internal and external rotation flexion extension bending your wrist and extending it what degree of freedom are you missing that is super critical we're missing what we call ulnar radial deviation which is the motion of shaking hands which is the motion of you know, if you try to drink with soup or a bottle and lock your wrist and try to pick it up from a table and bring it to your mouth, try drinking that way. It's very hard. We were missing it. So we developed a system initially that did both, but we also learned that it got way too long. It got way too complex and heavy at the worst place because, you know, torque lever arms are a thing. And the further out you have it, the worse it is. And then it was just anatomically incorrect. And the mental cognitive burden, like at some point, I would love to talk to you because uh, you're smart and you're cerebral about like just the cognitive load and the emotional and mental strain that it takes to, to do tasks and as we design products for people. But I digress. So we, one of the most brilliant engineers that we worked with uh, and I still talk to and helps me in first robotics um, and some of my other projects is Keith Filet. 
he developed this thing called a compound risk system that combined ulnar radial deviation with flexion extension. So essentially what it did was down and in, up and out. And it had a single motor that followed a constrained path that he had modeled out that was optimized to do all the tasks. And with that said, you could figure that out. Now, that was one of the cool innovations from it. The other aspect of it is having a powered shoulder and all these joints, how do you coordinate it in real time? Mm -hmm. um, so, and how do you make it intuitive? We started out with strap and go foot controls, then went to inertial that were uh, force sensitive resistors in your shoes themselves, other tactile buttons and uh, EMGs, uh, sensor so electromyography where you're reading the electrical potential across the mu muscle bodies this also tied into targeted muscle reinnervation which is a really cool surgery that people can get where they find the severed nerve bundles and they retransplant it in the case of an upper extremity mpt typically into the pec and they splay out the uh, muscle the nerve fibers and after six months or so, they begin to train the system on what we call pattern recognition. So you don't necessarily know what these individual strands are doing, but as the user begins to think about it, you can train the computer to recognize, well, they're thinking about opening and closing their hand. So when I see this pattern light up on my sensor array, that's what I need to translate the sensor to, to the hand or to the elbow or to the shoulder. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And one of my questions about all of these upgrades that you've made to the Steka DARPA loop, loop arm moving forward is that now this arm has all these revolutionary capabilities that an arm didn't have before. How do you continue to improve? What are the next um, things on the horizon for prosthetic arms? Is it like sensory touch? I know that's definitely um, a big thing that I've researched about and heard in the field of prosthetics. Uh, is there some important technical development that you think will be occurring in the next decade that will enable all sorts of new technical developments for the arm? How much room is there to really improve or make a better arm with the technology we have currently? Or are people making similar arms that have similar capabilities just with different approaches towards them? So I think there's definitely room for improvement. And Haptic feedback and proprioception are really exciting aspects of it. So ultimately what we're missing right now, we have ways to simulate and get the forces. But what I would really like to see is it feeding directly into nervous system and coupled with your electromechanical arm system, an, a way to get someone to feel heat, to feel pressure, to feel their child squeezing their hand to know what that hug felt like and have it feel real. I think that is an area that hasn't been on. And unfortunately, the sad part about it is the field of prosthetics is always tied to advancements during wartime and conflict, right? Civil War, World War One, some of the most functional reliable devices, such as a split hook with the rubber bands, you can't beat it. Right now, I would still always recommend that any amputee should always have a have a purely mechanical Hosmer hook. It is so people that are good at it are so incredibly used, 
um, adept at using that and their what they can do and what it for their everyday lives. So with that said, a lot of the hands we're getting more grip features. They're getting lighter. Are the arm systems advancing in significant ways right now? It they haven't right. They there's some great innovation. Psionics uh, that came out is one of that I'm a big fan of. Uh, Touch Bionic, B Bionic are some great arm systems. Autobach have long done some really incredible things out of Germany. Auto, so if you're interested in the field of prosthetics, Autobach and Oser are the 800-pound gorillas in the industry that are leading the way in a lot of those things. But there's definitely room for improvement for this. The other thing that we're actually fighting right now is what we talked about earlier, is regenerating human tissue and retransplanting those. And that, to me, is exciting. I think that in in our field of rehabilitative medicine, that is ultimately the holy grail, is to graft them back on a their own equivalent of and restore what is missing or damaged. So it's a constant balancing act. So yes, you can get better on the electromechanical um, or purely mechanical systems, or you can give them back something that is actual human flesh-blown blood, muscles, and nerves, right, in their own. Is there continued work with um, the DECA DARPA Luke, Luke arm to work on integrating the actual mechanism with the human flesh and the rejection problems that come along with that? Or is that uh, something that's still on the horizon for a lot of arms? Is it kind of the arm is built separate and then that's a problem tackled after the construction of the arm? Sure. So there's two things. One, I have worked and trained a lot in interface technology. So if you're interested in about human interface and really cool things, look at biodesigns out of California. Uh, they were the ones who helped to solve the problems and dealt with the weight. And if you can imagine the torque of, you know, a 10 pound arm that's hanging off of just a short residual limb, right? How do you make it comfortable all day? How do you fit it such that a child or a more petite individual could wear it and have be able to support it where it doesn't become an expensive paperweight or closet weight? Mm-hmm. So the interface portion of it is extremely important. When we talk about rejection and other things too, the DECA arm system and some of these others, unless you are doing what we call osteointegration, mm -hmm. right, which I'm sure you know of, for those that don't know, it's a fancy word of direct bone coupling. You're integrating into the osteum or the, the bone itself. So what you would do is drill a bone stud anchor into, let's say, your humerus and have it be a transcutaneous interface. So you essentially have an open flesh wound around it. Now with porous technology, you kind of grow into it, but you have to be careful. So then, then you, what you have is an external, usually a titanium pin or anchor that the arm system clips onto there. But now you're, but what's really cool about it is you're directly coupled to your bone. So it moves where you want to go. The downside of it is in order to not break your bone and cause direct trauma, internal bleeding, external bleeding, it is designed as a release, a mechanical fused 
So if you overload the connection, it's designed to snap externally outside of your body and break away. So imagine if you are an amputee walking down a flight of stairs and for whatever reason you overload it and it suddenly snaps and gives way. Or if you're holding your child and for whatever reason it gives way. So that part of it hasn't been fully solved. Having to take, because you have an open wound and a lot of the um, antibacterial, antimicrobial, uh, antiviral medications too is kind of a downside of that. Although it is being um, worked on. If you're interested in more in the field of osteointegration, uh, Dr. Bronemark, I believe he's out of Denmark. Read some of his papers. They're available. They're really cool. And watch some videos. That's so, incredible. yes. Thank yeah, you. It, it's some wild stuff. But does that kind of answer your question? Yes, that's an incredible answer. And I'll link all these resources that Wayne is talking about in the description of the podcast for people like myself interested in learning more about that. Um, and, and the Decadar for Arms system, I can't comment more because I've been so far removed from it. Like I left in 2011 to go to an MIT startup on advanced robotic pros prosthetic ankles afterwards. But if you want to know more, it's now under the Mobius Bionics um, name system and being sold under that. Yes, and I will put all of the links below. Thank you again for covering that. And now I think beyond all of this incredible work we've been talking about uh, with prosthetics, there's a complete other amazing project that you've built from the ground up, which I really want to talk about, which is Charge Concepts, which you're a founder of. Um, can you tell us more about the organization and your, your mission, the projects you work on, the clients you work with, all of the exciting things about building your own project like Charge Concepts? Okay, so Charge Concepts was an idea where that we could take these energetic, passionate ideas that, you know, we really believed in and transition them into impactful rural technologies, programs, therapies, and initiatives, and bring them to life to, in whatever field that we wanted to. Our ultimate goal was to get back to what our team, which was largely founded out of DECA engineers or ex-DECA engineers, back into getting to biomedical, but it's really hard to start a company doing that. So we started looking into contract engineering. We looked at, it did a lot of pitch competitions where we started out with portable charge battery systems back in 2011 in a rental and exchange model. But that also led to working in different fields um, and opening up opportunities in UBM fashion shows sneaker conventions, working with Stan Lee and being the, some of his product designers for his kamikaze events. It was really fascinating having to pursue project after project and try to bootstrap the company with it. We did medical product design for isolator, a stem cell isolation unit and doing a redesign on that to work with the National Guard on disaster relief, field awareness and system management to give them a comprehensive picture of all the different sensors and drones and know where their forces were in real time and to be able to update the picture for all of these individuals as quickly as we could. One of the things that we jokingly talk about as our crappy project that we're extremely proud of was to work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the University of Toronto on their reinvent the, to reinvent the toilet 
competition. Reinvent the Toilet Challenge. So if you look and watch the first episode of Inside Bill's Brain on Netflix, we did the uh, the human interface and external enclosure design in partnership with the University of Toronto. It's shown for a very brief sec, few minutes, but it's some of those things that try and improve the human condition of giving people the basic human decencies and rights of access to clean water, sanitation and sewage, allowing people to use the bathroom in a sanitary manner with basic human dignity was important to us. I definitely learned through the School of Hard Knocks because I did, I got two engineering degrees. But what's really cool about the entrepreneurial community is we all help each other out, right? Your job is to connect with people, to network, and to pay it forward. And I made mistakes. I learned a lot from my mistakes. I got my education in it that way. It didn't always go smoothly. Things later happened where we were signing, about to sign our biggest deal ever with a major cruise line and then COVID happened. But it's life, right? So nothing ever goes really smoothly, but daring to try is one of those things that I will never have the regrets for. It's not over. And sometimes we just juggle and have to balance time um, and family and things that are important to us. So that's Charged Concepts in a nutshell. What we're working on right now is uh, the next wave of digital acupuncture systems and defining this new category. But in a nutshell, it's a coupling Eastern medicine of acupuncture, which is over 5,000 years of experience, and realizing that, hey, these are digital nervous superhighways that for whatever reason allow us to tap in. We've done the research and shown that for whatever reason, they are hypersensitive to electrical conductivity, but allow us to trigger certain natural behaviors to normalize organ function, restore neural pathways, um, even trigger things like in systemic endorphin release, which mitigates a lot of our pain and attenuates our pain and emotional and stress response too. I'm not trying to be braggadocious, but it's so cool what our team is working on. And I'm so proud to be a part of and to say I'm somewhat leading the team. It's really cool. I think it's amazing that you're exploring the connection between Eastern and Western medicine, your involvement in biomedical engineering, and then your embracing of Eastern medicines like acupuncture. I think sometimes people don't give um, certain medical technologies the credit that they're due. And it's really cool to hear someone exploring not only um, the culture of medicine where they live in the United States, but also the culture of medicine in other um, parts of the world. That's just so fascinating to me. I was involved in an extremely low speed motorcycle accident at like half a mile an hour. My pride was the most injured thing. Wear full gear, kids. It's great. But my wrist and my elbow, I had no wrist stability and I had golfer's elbow. My alternative was they couldn't find anything wrong at a traditional Western doctor, but they were willing to prescribe me a very, very large and generous and expensive sum of prescription opiates. 
Let's just put it that way. And I said, no. So now that we've heard a little bit about all the various endeavors and projects you're involved in and that you've started, do you have a summary of what a typical day looks like to you? How much does it vary? How many projects are you working on? And what are your advice? What is your advice for anyone with time budgeting and time management and making time for the things that are really valuable? Sure. So there's not, no such thing as a typical day. So to give you an idea, I teach uh, during the day. I have a 10-month-old son, a lovely wife who's also a teacher, who allows me to do the things that I want to do. But that also means that I have to learn to be vigilant. And in some points, I'm not as disciplined, but I've had to learn about it to try to do all the things and prioritize. It's a concept that I've learned and developed called time expansion and time contraction, which sounds major sci-fi. Maybe I've been watching too much Back to the Future and other fun things that I find inspiring, but I really believe in it. Sometimes we need to figure out how to, when you have a limited amount of time, slow down and almost do things in where it appears in slow motion, where you only have an hour window, but you're stretching out that time to really clearly articulate and see and map that out rather than feeling rushed. There are times where it's just busy work, where it's about time compression, you, you know you have four hours to get, it takes four hours, but you try to either multitask or or really compress the time down. And that might mean finding all the citations while listening to some music while you choose to, or simultaneously being able to listen to an audio transcribed research paper, right? And utilize your tools listen to a really cool podcast called like age of science and learn about some new stuff like CRISPR and what Ellie might be working on. Find and seek what makes you happy. Cause that is, I think the true key to finding how you manage and make time and deciding what you make time for in life. I want to live for the work that I'm passionate about doing, but not working to live. What I can't come back to is like, I'm having fun. I'm learning along the way. I'm expanding my mind. You always have something to learn, whether it's from, you know, inspiring young ladies such as yourself, Ellie. So that whole concept of a typical day, there's no such thing. Between the two nonprofits, Aqua Dynamics, which is really excited about because we didn't touch upon that, but that's the other firm that I am working with and leading on clean water, uh, dynamic thin film distillation technology. Current standard is about 1,000 watts per gallon. We think we, we know for sure that we can get it to 50 watts per gallon. Getting it to where it's scalable, deployable, low cost, and under 20 watts per gallon is where we're going. Uh, does that answer it with how I view my time? It's an incredible answer. I think my main takeaway from this entire interview so far is just how much fun you have with everything you do and how how much you you take away from everything and how you make everything a learning experience. And I think that's so inspiring. And I think myself and anyone listening uh, inspire, aspires to do that exact same thing. So 
Thank you so much for joining us for the first part of the interview. Um, we'll start the second part of the interview talking about your involvement in FIRST. So if anyone's interested in FIRST who's not part of FIRST, come learn about FIRST. And if you are part of FIRST, come learn about all the amazing things that Wayne does with FIRST and how he contributes to the FIRST community. So thank you so much and see you in the next part of the episode.